0: Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring news, guidance, and analysis from across the fin crime spectrum. I'm Brian spoda SVP of Product and Programming with ACFCS, and I'm going to kick off this episode with a question. Why do we do what we do? What's driving us to spend all this time and effort not just on detecting and preventing financial crime, but constantly seeking better ways to do so? And as a corollary, what does all this have to do with emerging technology? Well, by now you may have some questions of your own, but I'm not gonna answer those queries I've posed quite yet. You'll have to listen to find out. Suffice it to say that we're going to explore both the how and the why behind adopting some innovative technologies in the financial crime prevention space. My guests today are Andrew Davies, VP of Global Market Strategy, Financial Crime Risk Management with Fiserv, and he's joined by his colleague, Pierre Essensi, Director of Product Management, AML and Customer Risk with Fiserv, and we're looking forward to a wide-ranging and insightful conversation with them both. Well, Andrew, Pierre, thank you so much for being here on the Financial Crime Cast. It is a pleasure to have you join us uh, and pleasure to have this conversation around emerging tech in the FinCrime crime space. Uh, so thanks so much for being here. If you don't mind um, starting off by just giving us a little bit of background on you know your role and your uh, place in the the world, the wide world of uh, financial crime, uh, that would be fantastic. So, Andrew, since uh, since we have two of you on here today, I'll ask you to to start us off. So, uh, go ahead, please.
1: Thanks very much, Brian, and thanks to the ACFCS for um, uh, having Pierre and I on today. It's um, it's a real pleasure, and it's a real a labor of love actually for Pierre and I, and I know yourself to work in this space. um, I'm based in New York, I'm originally from the UK. I started working in the financial crime risk management space in the late nineties. I've been in the space for a long time. And I started working off in the area of sanctions and that has evolved into AML transaction monitoring, also into fraud detection and some of the other um, uh, financial crimes that are really predicate crimes for money laundering, particularly around human trafficking, uh, child sexual exploitation. And what I do is I actually work for FISERV and I work in the capacity of helping our product team, our development team, our implementation team. But most importantly, our customers fight different types of financial crime risks in support of the moral imperative. So I really sort of lead that strategy strategy function within our group.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for that. And I, I love that term moral imperative too, because uh, it's something that too often is is lost. And I know it's something we'll talk a little bit about um, in just a moment on this podcast. When uh, when we talk about financial crime, there is a moral imperative involved. So um, thanks very much for being here. Uh, Pierre, over to you. Tell us a little bit about your, yourself. Yeah. Your
2: thanks so much, Brian. And thanks. Thank you for having me here. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Pierre Isensee. Um, I've been with Pfizer for the last 15 years. Um, I'm based out of Miami, Florida, um, I've been working for Pfizer, like I said, for 15 years. Um, I started off originally as a business consultant, helping our clients uh, implement our product, uh, both in the, sorry, in the life insurance, the banking space, money service businesses, and the financial services area. Um, that's been sort of worldwide implementations um, all, over the, all over the globe. Um, I've recently stepped over into our product management team, and I'm the director currently, the director of our product management team for our financial crime risk management product, um, helping clients uh, uh, fight crime. As, as Andrew mentioned, also, so just uh, happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you both. And uh, again, you know, let's pick up right on that thread that you you we started out with here. Um, And let's talk about the, you know, the why we're going to have a wide ranging conversation on um, tech in in financial crime with things we can do with robotic process automation and uh, natural language generation and all sorts of really fascinating tools. But before we get into the weeds, I think it might be able to take a step back and just frame up um, the question of, you know, why we're focusing on innovation and why there is kind of an urgent need to improve results in financial crime detection and prevention. Um, so Andrew, I would love your perspective on that. You know, why does this matter? Why are we trying to, you know, get it right and frankly, get it better when it comes to detecting and preventing financial crime?
1: Yeah, thanks, Brian. And, and we are getting it better. That's the really good thing. That's the really encouraging thing. And, and actually, this actually, through the Creation of organizations like the ACFCS. So I think we're we're definitely getting better as an industry. And and that means that we're taking more of a holistic view of financial crime. So it's not just AML. It's not just fraud. It's not just human trafficking. It's taking a look at all of those risks and managing them holistically because they are closely uh, intertwined. The reason why we do what we do and why I celebrate everyone who's listening to this podcast is there's around any point in time, according to the International Labour Organization, 40 million people in in human slavery around the world, 40 million people. 75% 75 percent women 25 percent children most of these are related to some sort of uh, um, you know, human trafficking or human slavery but they they are the numbers are sheer uh, absolutely staggering so and something that we can help effect a reduction in those uh, those numbers also if you look at it from a consumer of financial services perspective according to the ita group just in the United States alone 47 percent of people are affected by identity theft this is bank um, account takeover leading to losses in excess of $500 billion. So we have a, and, and, and I actually use the term sort of three dimensions of financial crime risk that your organizations and, and certainly my organization are managing. We're managing our compliance obligations. Absolutely, we need to do that. We're managing our reputational risk. Absolutely, we need to do that. But people want to do business with companies and organizations that have integrity and security. And then, as you mentioned, Brian, there is this sort of moral imperative. And it's something that I know motivates myself and Pierre and you, that notion of doing the right thing, that sort of categorical imperative, because that's in the best interests of the um, uh, majority of the population. So that's why we need to do what we do and we need to do it better.
0: Great. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think it's the, you know, I think that's the really the right place to start here because now we're going to talk about, you know, uh, some of the ways in which, uh, uh, we can do it better. Right. And, and particularly a topic that has been, I think, top of mind or near top of mind for a lot of the folks out there. Um, and that is the, the, uh, the effective technology piece. Um, so, you know, when we talk about, uh, uh, ways that we can improve results and ways that we can work towards this you know this moral good right um why look at technology in particular um what is it about you know some of the 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 tech solutions that you're seeing in the industry that um say okay you know this is the direction we need to go in to manage financial crime risk
1: yeah that's a great question so uh, one of the uh, and i guess there are a couple of things that are sort of happening around the world sort of recently. One of the things, and I always come back to the whole sort of uh, um, my genesis in this uh, space was actually related to sanctions and and anti-money laundering. And according to the UN, more than 98% of the money that's laundered through the financial system is actually um, goes undetected. 98% undetected. So we've had technology in the space for decades at this point to try and detect money laundering and to, t- to detect other types of financial crime. And we've made significant um, improvements since I started in this space. I started in the sanction space in the mid 90s looking for Uh, um, different types of um, entities that may be sanctioned or linked to uh, political exposure. We've certainly made great leaps forward. But now with the advent of new types of technology, we can do even better. So we can materially reduce that uh, 98% that flows through the financial system undetected. And I think that, um, you know, how, how the world turns, right? You know, the world turns and, and remains eternally still because I started in sanctions. And then recently, as Pierre and I have seen, there's a lot of um, activity around sanctions and how we can be more effective in imposing sanctions to achieve the, uh, um, the sort of that moral imperative, if you like. So we're going to uh, talk about some different technologies today. But the, the volume of data that goes through organisations systems at this point is so huge that we can't do everything manually every second every human in the world generates this is an IBM stat it's a great stat generates around 1.7 megabytes of data to interrogate interrogate that data to exploit the value in that data to prevent financial crime then we clearly need technology it's beyond the capacity of um, individuals
0: yeah I think that's a undoubtedly true there is a no way that you know we've reached a point where we are far beyond human intervention and uh the volume and velocity of data being generated so on that note what are we talking about in specific you know we mentioned emerging tech and we threw out some some names and some acronyms which people may or may not be familiar with but let's get right into uh, what what we're specifically going to be discussing so can you can you talk about the the tech and the capabilities that we'll be addressing today
1: yeah I'll introduce them I know Pierre has been implementing a lot of these um, uh, different things in our own products and also for different financial institutions Institutions. But, you know, one of the things that, and we will come back to this, one of the things that underlies all the technology is data, and that data can be used by, you know, the first thing that we can talk about, which is the leveraging more advanced analytics, more sophisticated detection capabilities to apply to that data to uncover uh, suspicious activity that could be related to money laundering or fraud. So we'll talk about analytics. Then um, we'll talk about something, and you're right, I actually sort of threw in the term RPA, which is that sort of robotic process automation. It's using automated tools, and I actually sometimes refer to it as intelligent automation. So it's using tools to do a lot of the legwork, so maybe capturing documents around uh, um, an AML investigation rather than having your analysts go out and have to do all of that legwork to collect the information before they can apply what I refer to as their sort of spidey sense to actually do um, money laundering and fraud investigations. So it takes a lot of that uh, um, sort of legwork out of the uh, the process and can make processes more efficient, but most importantly, more effective. So analytics, we'll talk a little bit about um, automation. And then something that Pierre and I have been doing some work with um, is natural language generation. So this could be generating a a, a suspicious activity reports narrative, or there are some other uses that I know Pierre has come up with recently and then maybe um, we'll come back to the whole notion of data. What sources of data can we use to be more effective in fighting financial crime?
0: Excellent, thank you for that. So let's start out with analytics. You had mentioned the analytics piece here, uh, but uh, you know, this is a term that's, that's thrown around quite a bit, but let's talk about what it actually means in this context. What, are, what do you mean when we say analytics um, and where in specific in terms of AML and financial crime monitoring life cycles can analytics be used or perhaps, you know, there might be multiple places, but where do you find it most effective?
1: There are definitely multiple places and I'm going to, um, I'm just going to introduce this and then Pierre can jump in. He's been working on some specific pro- uh, um, projects for this. So I think about analytics here as using more advanced statistical inference. Yeah, you know, our technology in particular, is, and, and we've been doing this for like 15 years, we're looking at, deviations in behavior. So we're doing behavioral monitoring and behavioral analytics, but that started off really 15 years ago, looking at simple deviations from something like the normal distribution. You know, Is this an unusual piece of activity relative to an individual or a business's um, historical norm? Is it different than we're expecting them to use a product? But then also looking at outliers, you know, is this unusual from, for this particular customer relative to other customers? So we started off in that sort of realm. And that was to your point, Brian, that was where we were applying that to the detection of financial crime. So we would get incoming data we, um, related to maybe transactions or non-transactional data and then using that to really kick out an alert saying, hey, there, there is something suspicious here. But we've actually now evolved to use analytics really, and, 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 and again, sorry, just to come back, um, these are statistical techniques, machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence applied to data to make some sort of um, um, accurate inference based on that data, looking at good behavior and bad behavior. But we've, we've actually found a number of places where that can be effective. Um, obviously it can be effective on the detection side, and, and as you receive incoming data, you analyze it using analytics. But then one of the things, and I'm going to let Pierre talk about this a little bit, is using that um, both that incoming data and also the, the outcome of previous investigations to feed predictive models to, to um, prioritize alerts or cases within a, a financial crime detection system. And then before Pierre goes into that, just one other thing, you can actually use this post-investigations to do um, a sort of an, you know, analysis of how successful you are being, but they're also on the front end to use different types of analytics and, and different types of technology to make sure that you fully understand who you're conducting business with, both as you do initial due diligence and on an ongoing basis. But I know Pierre has been working on some projects, particularly around that super cool area, around um, that symbiosis between the um, automated detection based on incoming data and on the um, the outcome of previous investigations. Pierre, I know that you've been working on that.
2: Yeah, thank you, Andrew. So yeah, definitely been working quite a bit on that, um, specifically with a number of customers, um, and really taking a look at um, past scenarios and past investigations that the customer that the the analysts have been making on alerts, um, taking a look at the trends in that data of how they've been adjudicating those alerts, um, and then making inferences on future alerts. So basically what we're, we're then doing is we're taking the lessons learned from our analysts, we're, we're using their knowledge and their understanding of what they're seeing in terms of those alerts and making judgments on those alerts based upon those previous decisions of those alerts by those analysts. And that's used then, for example, then to deprioritize certain types of alerts or to prioritize other types of alerts to bring those more to the forefront for those analysts and also allows them to really take a look at the true risks for the financial institution um, and to focus on on that so really to take that risk-based approach um, and to, to make sure that you know that's being that's being followed so that they can really focus in on the work that is most um, risky for the financial institution and of course then they can always and come look at the, the things that have been sort of deprioritized, but the initial priority or the highest priority of things is allowing the, alert of the the analyst to focus on the things that are most risky to that financial institution.
1: Yeah, it's super cool approach. And, and one of the things that I know Pierre has been working on and he can describe these things better than me, it's, it's been um, 30 years since I had studied statistics at university, but you, we basically have the outcome of previous investigations. This is one of the areas where we found the application of analytics to be effective. We, we take that data, we have our data scientists, and, and I know many financial institutions have their own data scientists. They analyze that data and really identify the characteristics or features in that data Data, and they're using different techniques. I know one of the things that um, our team has used is sort of building this sort of um, random forest sort of technique where we look at that data and th- that uh, technique can be used to prioritize these characteristics of these uh, investigations and use that to as a as a scoring mechanism to inform subsequent alerts that we have um, you know, coming into the detection engine and that way you can um, really build up this library or repository of these features um, that then can be used by other financial institutions because you know, this is you know, one of the things with money laundering is it's really in the sort of uh, the interests of the collective um, um, organisations that make up our industry to really try and share data and maybe share these characteristics so that we can achieve yeah. that uh, moral imperative that we talked about at the start of the presentation.
0: Yeah, no, fantastic points all around, and I, I like the I like the idea of uh, uh, what I'm hearing from both of you is this idea of of really taking a, a, a tool and then using it to empower investigators, right? Using it to empower human judgment because so often in the the AML space, I think there's a, it's lessening, I think, but there's still a lingering concern around, you know, am I going to be replaced or am I redundant due to, uh, you know, machine learning and AML? And I think it's absolutely not the the goal. Um, it is a tool set that's designed to empower human judgment. I think that's- and, reduce the you know routine kind of tasks that can be automated. So Pierre, yeah, please go
2: ahead. No, I was just gonna say, Brian, I think you're exactly spot on there. I mean, it's it's, it's a tool that's meant to empower the analysts um, and also so that they're not spending times on things that maybe are a little bit more frivolous, I would say, or, or, or less less um, concerning to the financial institution as the things that they should be looking so they can really focus in on the things that are the biggest threats to the financial institution. Rather than being, um, you know, doing doing busy work, I would say it like
0: that. Yeah, yeah. a lot of uh, copy and pasting from you know different data sources to try to get your data all in one place, type of thing. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the advanced analytics space. Um, you know, so uh, there's obviously different tiers of you know where institutions are at. Um, some are on the more basic level, I mean, some, some smaller institutions may still be using uh, Excel spreadsheets to track transactions and that type of thing. So uh, you know, from your perspective, what, what are some of the characteristics of what you, would, what you would view as advanced analytics in the AML and financial crime space?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, when we could still travel I was actually visiting a large, um, a mid-sized financial institution in the Midwest in the United States. And one of the things that the chief risk officer said to me was or, or, or asked me was, how can I compete? And, and competing in the sense of, you know, how can I compete with the criminals in the same way that the, the, uh, the large institutions can? Because I don't have the volume of data. So I don't have the volume of data that the, you know, the top tier that, you know, the trillion dollars in assets under management types of financial institutions have. So um, just as I come on to that sort of topic of advanced analytics, one of the things that we can do as an industry, and I know that FinCEN with some of their recent outreach has been, you know, thinking about this is the use of consortium data. Is there any way that we can share data? The more data we've got, the better the techniques that we can apply. So um, something that's easy for me to understand because I I only studied statistics at the first year at university, which was, and that was decades ago, was I was was starting off with looking at um, just deviations from that Gaussian distribution. So the the bell curve essentially. So so even if you're a small institution, you can start to do that and look at your uh, customers' uh, um, deviations in behavior based on their sort of historical norms. Then, as you become more advanced, and certainly the the large financial institutions and organisations like FISERV, we have our own sets of data scientists, and this is really the you know a, a very um, uh, um, it's a professional discipline to have uh, this sort of data science uh, uh, background, but you can start using more advanced techniques. So rather than just simple statistical analysis, you can uh, move into the idea of more advanced analytics, which could be supervised machine learning. So similar to the sort of techniques that we talked about earlier on, we're doing this feature analysis with a data scientist and, and identifying and prioritizing these features in data. But then there are certain uh, um, techniques where you can use unsupervised machine learning, almost where that uh, um, some sort of uh, technique to really sort of learn and um, uh, from data uh, automatically. And then we move into the whole space of that um, artificial intelligence and, and using other techniques to be more effective in financial fighting financial crime. And I think there's a, you know, if you're you're right, Brian, there are many organizations that really aren't at that stage, but you can start on that journey with the goal of being more effective in financial crime. And, and those are some of the, that's the sort of pathway that, that I see financial institutions um, you know going on at the moment with that statistical analysis, machine learning, AI, applying that to, uh, to as much data as you can possibly get your hands on. I know Pierre has done work with um, financial institutions across the sort of spectrum in terms of size. But does that does that make sense to you, Pierre?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. So, and I think that's, as you said, it's a, it's a journey that that most financial institutions go through from that sort of rules-based to statistical analysis, behavioral detection techniques, then to the supervised machine learning, and then to, as you mentioned, the unsupervised um, AI sort of models that you can deploy. The, the sort of tell me what I don't know kind of models that can be deployed into a uh, a financial institution's AML or even fraud program, for that matter. Um, I, I always think that it's a it's, it needs to be a sort of a balanced approach um, as you go along. That you still need sort of a a, a, a nice sort of mix between maybe rules based scenarios, some supervised machine learning, and also that sort of detection models to tell me the things that I don't know about. So I think it's a it's a journey that most companies go through, um, and to, to get to that sort of uh, Unsupervised machine learning, um, at, but at the end of the day, it's also that once you, um, you know, it's also that combination that you want to get to. I don't think you really want to truly, at least in the AML space, truly go fully unsupervised machine learning AI kind of detection techniques. Um, it's it's a n- nice to have that sort of combination of things that are explainable to an auditor, explainable to the regulator, and also to have those other techniques where you're trying to find out things that would not be caught by those, either by the the, uh, rules-based or even statistical analysis or that supervised machine learning.
0: Yeah, excellent points on on the kind of tiered approach that you need there, too. Um, And, you know, I heard you call it a journey, which I think is a great point, you know, particularly for those that aren't necessarily at the level of you know, implementing uh, unsupervised machine learning or just wondering where to start. It is a journey um, and it is incremental for. Not all institutions; some may make sort of exponential leaps and sophistication, but I think for most, it is uh, it is a uh, it is a, a, a approach of more gradual uh, adoption over time and levels of comfort with different uh, different technologies. So, speaking of different technologies, let's pivot into the next item on our agenda. Um, term that came up before in the the, the introduction was robotic process automation. Um, Can you tell us, Andrew, a little bit more about, you know, first of all, what robotic process automation is? I think there's some clues in the name, Um, RPA, as it's also called, but also how it can be used in the context of AML and fin crime operations.
1: Yeah, so really RPA or robotic process automation, and 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 we have a practice that sort of leads this. So I'm sort of again um, um, just sort of introducing this as a concept here, and we've certainly seen um, significant adoption by our customers in the uh, financial crime space. But it's essentially using technology to again empower investigators, in particular. So it's it's using what's called virtual workers to go out and do some of the more mundane, more routine tasks. So, And these are generally highly repeatable tasks, highly predictable tasks. So they're things that really are not, um, you're not best utilizing your expert analysts and your expert AML and fraud people by getting them to do all of these sort of routine tasks. Uh, to your earlier point, if we can get, take away some of those routine tasks then the analysts can really be more effective in in actually investigating financial crime rather than doing a lot of legwork. Like, for example, one of the areas that we've seen um, um, significant reduction in in the uh, um, overhead tasks is related to both initial Uh, due diligence and also ongoing alert and case uh, investigations so we use a virtual worker or a bot in this case uh, um, to go out and collect information for example if you're doing um, a review of a, a customer as they're um, you're onboarding them. So to go away to those disparate systems, because today we, you know, well, although we try and sort of look to that sort of nirvana of having a single repository of all data about our customers, but we know in practice many organisations have many source of systems. And when you're doing that due diligence, you have to go out and collect all of the information in order to get that holistic view of risk about a particular customer before you can you can actually uh, um, do that review of their application or of their ongoing relationship with the organization. So the virtual worker can go to those disparate systems, grab all of the relevant data, maybe add that to some sort of customer record or investigation um, uh, tool so that all the information is drawn together so the analyst's time is optimized, spent on managing the risk of establishing that relationship. Then you can do that on an ongoing basis, so periodically, Uh, capture information about the customer if there is a periodic review. We've also seen organizations doing, taking customer information, going out, using virtual workers to do web searches, screens against PEP lists, and then bring all of that data into an alert or a case for the purpose of investigation. Now for alerts that really sort of of continue that sort of lineage through from the analytics, if there is um, some analytics that have generated an alert so, there is something inherently suspicious. Then, as an investigator goes in to investigate that alert, any ancillary data that needs to be drawn from these uh, um, different systems is pulled into the alert. So the analyst has all of the information available to conduct their investigation. So that's really sort of introduction to how we're seeing um, automation and RPA utilized in the financial crime space. I know um, Pierre's seen this, some of our customers, particularly in the insurance space have um, adopted this technology. And I know that um, Pierre has been looking at it in the context of our products as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and it, for me, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head kind of thing, Andrew, when you said optimizing the analysts, um, you know, uh, time so that they can really focus in on those investigations rather than, for example, creating a case and then having to go to 20 different source systems and attach documents from all those different sources into that case. That consumes time away from your ability to make that uh, to, to, to conduct that investigation um so that's really you know the, the one of the powerful tools in cases um is is the ability to retrieve documents through the different life cycles of the case so for example maybe it's in the case creation or then i promote my case to a different stage within the life cycle of that case then i have another set of documents which needs to be retrieved so i'm as I'm going through that, going through that life cycle of that case, I'm saving the time of the investigator to focus in on the investigation rather than being sort of a, you know, somebody who's going out and grabbing papers, shuffling papers and all that kind of stuff, allowing them to focus in on investigation on the case. Andrew, you mentioned also the alerts. I've seen a lot of things with alerts also where basically that to grabbing those initial documents that you need to look at um, so that if there is an alert that you need to, to review, you already have that stuff in place. Again, you don't have to go back and forth to different systems. That's sort of swiveling your head from one screen to another, which I, I talk about all the time, just getting in there, getting the work done, having everything available for you so that you could be most efficient with working both the alerts and the cases.
0: Yeah. And again, you know, it, it does seem to be coming back to empowering the human, right? All sorts of tools and techniques to really uh, empower human beings and get them to do what they do effectively rather than spend time doing things they don't necessarily do effectively, like compile yeah. data. Um, so, yeah, great points. And I, you know, I like the idea of a virtual worker as well, because I think sometimes um, it can be challenging to think, OK, you know, there is a, a tool like robotic process automation, where do I apply a tool within my process? We'll think of it as, you know, what tasks would you have a worker do, right? Like here's a job description for a worker. You know, you can create a job description for a robotic process automation tool too. So um, yeah, so there's some great context around that. So uh, let's let's throw the last of our acronyms into the mix here. And that is NLG, uh, natural language generation. I think this might be the least familiar well, at least for me, maybe for some of our listeners as well, um, the least familiar in the financial crime context and, and maybe a little a bit less intuitive how this applies. So, uh, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit more about what NLG is and how it uh, applies in the, the AML fin crime context?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will um, pass this over to Pierre shortly because he's much more creative than I am with this particular technology. So NLG stands for Natural Language Generation, Um, And this is the process of taking data and um, uh, taking that data and putting it into a, a, a human readable form. So creating a report or in the context of where we've seen it used in the the financial crime space is taking data and using it to create things like alert notes or, or case notes. So as you're going through an investigation, you know, is there a standard set of data that you can put into a machine readable form that could be used, for example, in a SAR narrative? In that way, it achieves a number of things. It takes some of that legwork out, maybe uh, formatting the data in a machine readable form that can then be subsequently sent to the regulators. And of course, using um, technology to create some of that, uh, um, a portion of the suspicious activity report narrative, it makes the narratives consistent. So you're always getting the same data, you're putting it into the same format so that it can be um, you know, even subsequently analyzed more effectively by the regulators as you submit these things. So it's really that process of taking data, putting it into some sort of machine readable form. And I was unimaginative here. I was um, using the uh, thinking of the, this technology when we first started working with it to, um, to generate sort of alert notes, case notes, and um, potentially SAR narratives. And um, where our customers have applied this technology or have looked at applying this technology, they get a, ma- a material reduction in the time it takes to actually process alerts, for example. You know, I think you know, 10 to 17% reduction in the time it takes to process the alerts. And again, it's empowering, it's informing the analysts with different information so that they can be more effective, and I know that Pierre came up with something that I I'd, I hadn't even thought of around the use of um, NLG in the, the presentation of data to the analysts.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and thanks, Andrew. And I, you're spot also spot on also about you know just the, the the alert notes and the case notes and the narratives, and that that point that you made about consistency. Um, I've seen plenty of financial institutions that have struggled with analysts having gone off and doing uh, notes that uh, weren't very consistent and then having audit issues because of the inconsistency in their alerts and notes, uh, alert notes and case notes. Um, The other thing that I really found very powerful with, with NLG, for example, is that if you look at, for example, a customer record or an account record, Um, What you get in most systems or a lot of systems is is just simply an overview of the non-financial transactions. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you like change of addresses or change of phone numbers or things like that, um, or an overview of, or a listing of all the financial transactions. And what you can do, for example, with NLG is just simply NLG can look at that data for that customer record or that account record and give you a quick sort of summary or bullet point Um, on that customer record or that account record about what's going on. So for example, Brian, let's say that you had three changes of addresses and two changes of phone number within the last 24 hours. If I'm opening up a customer record for you, Brian, I don't have to scan through all that data. Basically, I'm gonna get like a highlight or sort of a a, a headline, if you will, um, saying, hey, this customer Brian has changed his address, and he's had two change of phone numbers within the past 24 hours. When I open that record straight away, without having to scan through all that list of data, you think also about also management reporting. That's also a fantastic use case. So typically, when you when you talk about management reports, you're talking about pie uh, pie charts, graphs, uh, bar charts, and all that kind of thing. With the NLG technology, basically, what it can do is It can summarize that data that's on that chart um, and give you an overview of what has happened, for example, in the previous quarter as compared to to the current quarter. And it also can take a look at those previous trends and make predictions based upon those trends about what will happen in the future trends. And if you think about, for example, the, uh, the, the, the volume of alerts or the volume of cases or the, the, the changes in the types of financial crime. So, let's say that I have a lot of elderly abuse, for example, and it's, 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 it's like the previous quarter I had 20 cases of it, you know, and before that I had 10 cases and now I have 30 cases of it. It can say, hey, based upon these previous trends, this is something that maybe you want to focus in on it because we see an increase in that trend in that fin- type of financial crime.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating one for me. I think there's, you know, just a lot of applications to be explored there. And it's really cool to see some of the ones that you touched on um, on this call. And I think, you know, a lot more to be done there, a lot of creativity uh, to be applied within, within the, the NLG solutions. Very cool to see that. Let's, let's talk, you know, we've been focused on technology and, and obviously that's the, the main thrust of this podcast, a huge piece of the the puzzle when it comes to uh, improving results in financial crime profession, uh, uh, prevention in general. But, you know, beyond technology, what else can we do to effectively manage alerts related to money laundering and financial crime? Any thoughts there, Andrew?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm often thinking about this, because I think we have, in the space, we clearly have you know, experts, um, experts at reviewing um, alerts and really uncovering financial crime, and that's why, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm so privileged to have the opportunity to speak to this group of people and the members of ACFCS because it's such a um, it's such a noble endeavor that what everyone's doing. And I think some of the things that we can do, there are many organisations out there that are offering you know, best practice services, and I think having a consistency how we manage alerts beyond the technology having that sort of defined process and procedures so um, you know, so that we know how to, you know, if there's an alert related to structuring, you know, what what are the steps that we need to take to effectively manage that alert beyond, um, you know, beyond technology, and that's really making sure that we have consistency within financial institutions, within organisations, and across the industry. I think that's some. So the the applicability of or the application of standard, um, uh, clearly defined and explainable processes is something that. Um, we should aspire to and, and many organizations have this today. But I think that that is something that we've been working with an organization called K2 Integrity on a whole process about how to effectively manage alerts in a consistent and um, accurate way. So that's uh, certainly something we can do. And then using the technologies to draw together information and have the uh, lots of information available to the analysts as they're going through this standard process. And again, that's beyond the technology, but making sure people are informed with all of the necessary data. It's a few years old now, but this is a statistic from the uh, from Dun & Bradstreet. And it goes to the point of you know, why we need to get the right information into the hands of the analysts. And that the statistic is you know, every hour of every day of every day of the year, in the United States alone, there's 184 changes of ownership or control of organizations. So how do you know that, you know, the organization that you're doing business with today has still got the same ownership or the same controlling interest as it had when you onboarded them? So having the analysts informed with the right data and making sure that we stay up to date with the, uh, the currency of information that we have. So I think that those are some things, you know, beyond the technology. They're probably a, a bit linked to the technology, but you know, having standard approaches and best practices. And this has been advocated by the, you know, the regulators and organizations like the FATF of having that risk-based approach, but making sure that is defined and, um, and consistent.
0: Yeah, some great points, some great points there around, you know, consistency, um, and I think it's it's a struggle across uh, uh, all aspects, really, of financial crime detection and prevention, you know, money laundering, fraud, even sanctions, there's just a wide variation between country, between institution, between departments within institution, um, and uh, there's, you know, the, there are efforts to move towards, you know, best practices, right, um, but uh, I think we can do more there and hopefully ACFCS, frankly, can play a role in that. So yes. um, let's, um, let's finish up this, what has been a really fascinating conversation with uh, a point that you know, has kind of come up a few times, but uh, you know, we've, been, we've been circling around it to some extent, but all of this tech, um, whether it is analytics or robotic process automation or natural language generation relies on having the requisite data um, so what type of data is necessary to really drive all of the tech, all of the capabilities that we have been discussing?
1: Yeah, I've got a, um, just a couple of points on, on data and, and this technology. Um, the first thing is the data is the fuel that drives all of these technologies, drives the analytics. So we need to make inference on accurate, consistent data. It drives the, you know, when we talked about the automation piece, we need to uh, you know, get information. So get data and present it to the analysts. And then the NLG approach, so generating natural language is, uh, is based on taking data and then putting it into some sort of human readable form. So really um, data is the fuel or glue that draws all of these things together. The other thing about this technology and data is data is changing instantaneously. I think there's more than 60% of organisations around the world have expressed an interest in doing real-time payments. There's $1.8 billion in um, business email compromise losses in 2020. And these are often uh, fraud incidents that are... Um, it can be intercepted in real time as we, as uh, people are originating real-time payments. So we're getting more and more data in real time. I think there was, I read, I think there's an IDC report maybe last year that talked about, you know, by 2023, 60% of organizations around the world will be using um, real-time technology to um, uh, manage AML and fraud risk. So I think we need to remember that, you know, the data is the glue and it also needs to be analyzed very, very quickly. In terms of the data that we use, um, um, really there I, I see there's really a sort of few sets of data. There's your transactional and non-transactional data that you have within your organization. There's um, uh, data that we get particularly around sanctions. as We've been seeing sanctions change a lot over the last few weeks. Um, so there's data that we can get from public records. And then there's third party data, really commercial providers of data and I think I know that Pierre has been doing quite a lot of work with different organizations and and has some quite strong views on the different types of data that we can use.
2: Yeah, thanks Andrew and and, and just to add on to the point of Andrew about third party data, it's really key to understanding who your customers are interacting with, whether that's an inbound transaction or an outbound transaction. Um, You know, I always give the the example of of a company called Happy Smiles and Happy Smiles. It sounds quite innocuous, but actually Happy Smiles could be a cannabis company. It could be a crypto company. It could be something else that's a little bit somewhat nefarious. Um, So understanding whether, you know, whether, you know, what that company is that your client or that even that person that your client is dealing with is key to either risk rating that transaction as being potentially more fraudulent or more of an AML risk or potentially even de-risking that transaction. So for example, let's say that I have a a transaction, it's an outbound wire transaction. And I understand, for example, that that's actually a mortgage title company as compared to a crypto company. That can be a decision where I basically can de-risk that transaction Um, As compared to that, if I understand that that transaction is a crypto, it's going to a crypto company. So that's when like third party data can be really important of understanding who your customers are dealing with, either from those inbound transactions or those outbound transactions. Um, And it's really important in the both in the in the sanctions process and also in the AML and fraud spaces for, for for understanding who those customers are interacting with.
0: Yeah, and I think very appropriate to close out on the sanctions piece as uh, it's incre- incredibly important given uh, world events right now to to get this right. So uh, very privileged to have Andrew and Pierre on this Financial Crime Cast. To have their guidance on, uh, on again, how we can how we can get this right, whether it's in the sanctions context or, or elsewhere, using some of this emerging tech, but also like, focusing on the human aspect of financial crime detection and prevention, whether that's the human impact on victims or the human empowerment we can gain through creative and innovative use of tech. So, Andrew Pierre, it's been a real pleasure having you on here.
2: Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian.
0: And with that, we will wrap up for the day. Please join us again for the next episode of the Financial Crimecast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or many other locations where you get your podcasts. Uh, please visit acfcs.org for the entire podcast lineup. For more information about everything we have to offer, again, my guests have been uh, Andrew and Pierre with Fiserv. Uh Please visit their site too. You'll find it in the description uh, to learn. more about everything Pfizer has to offer. We're signing off for now. Have a great rest of the day. Great rest of the week. Goodbye, everyone.